Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. While we finish up our week with our continuing series, The Authority of the King. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 9, verses 11 to 17, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, New Wine. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 4, Solomon the wise king tells us that there's a time for everything. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. And we all know that's true. It feels very different to attend a joyful wedding than it does to attend a funeral. The birth of a child and the death of a parent are different times indeed. There's a difference between victory and defeat, a difference between a night of dancing and a night of weeping. I think we should all learn how important it is to know the difference. Telling jokes to a mourning widow in order to cheer her up is a very insensitive thing to do. There is a time to laugh, but that's not the time. But it's also ill-conceived to tell a graduating high school student to expect nothing but grief, failure, bad bosses, and disappointments in life, and to say, you know, it's really going to be tough out there. No, graduation is a time to sing and laugh and to celebrate. There is a time to mourn, says Solomon, but it's not appropriate in all settings. It's important to understand the times. When a people, nation, or even a church falls into sin, it's a time to weep, not to dance, as if by happy thoughts we cure what's wrong. I once stood outside a statue in Berlin and tried to take it in. It's a statue of a Jewish woman. She's sitting and holding a child. It's beside a memorial for the Holocaust. I looked below the statue and I saw a German inscription, and I'm not going to translate it, but I've, I've rarely seen such a statement that expressed so utter and complete repentance for the sins of a nation. I, I stood looking at it. I was transfixed and I was overwhelmed. Yet there is a time when mirth would be an utter disgrace. But I want you to imagine the moment when you and I are transported before the throne room of God and being welcomed into his kingdom of eternal delight Tears are wiped away from all eyes because there is a cause for celebration. For as the the father of the prodigal said when his son returned, we had to celebrate. It's as if joy and feasting are mandated. Anything else would have been an utter disgrace. When Jesus was doing his public ministry, Matthew tells of the healing of a leper and the healing of a centurion's son and the calming of a storm and the utter and astounding authority of Jesus over demons and the news that he, the great king, had been given authority to forgive sins. And with all of this, Matthew then tells of an even more astounding miracle. It's Matthew's self-portrait. He a traitor to his people and to his God hated tax collector, has just repented and he's left his tax booth and become a follower of Jesus. People are being forgiven and transformed. New life is occurring in people. When this happens, we have to rejoice. So I'm reading today's text. It's Matthew 9, verses 10 to 17. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. 
Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and the worst tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skin bursts, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. See, our passage begins shortly after the conversion of Matthew. Upon conversion, Matthew invites Jesus to his house, and as he does, a great company of sinners show up, and and they're intrigued and they want to hear, and they're astonished that Jesus is taking time for them. Look again at verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? See, Jesus' activity in Matthew's house that night didn't go unnoticed. The Pharisees, already upset that that Jesus told a paralyzed man that his sins were forgiven, now want to know from Jesus' disciples why they're following a morally degenerate teacher who's, who's eating with ritually defiled people, and he's getting himself ritually defiled. I mean, what is he doing there, and why, you who are his disciples, why are you hanging out with him? They're urging them to leave him. I remember the first time I went to Egypt, and I saw a great church that meets in Cairo's garbage dump. Thousands of people at the fringes of Egyptian society, people whose only source of living is to scour through the the largest garbage dump I've ever seen. They're recycling whatever might bring them some source of income. And and these people who are are prone to disease and, and who have no other means of support have found Christ. He's changed their lives. I was amazed at how well-dressed many were. I was, I was overwhelmed that their children were being educated, but more, I was overwhelmed that the feeling in that massive garbage dump was one of palpable joy. I remember being overwhelmed by what I saw, and I also remember thinking, well, if you look for Jesus in this part of the world, where else would you find him but among the poor and among, among those who are despised by the rest of society? Is he not always found among the unclean? Isn't it among the sinners of the world that we find Jesus? So Jesus is ready to challenge the Pharisees. Look again at verses 12 and 13. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Pay attention to two very important things about Jesus' response. The first is that he quotes from Hosea 6, verse 6. This is a passage in which the prophet Hosea is confronting Israel with their sins. Israel says the prophet is like an unfaithful wife. She's pursuing other lovers. Now, undoubtedly, this refers to the idolatry which was then rampant. And furthermore, Hosea says that there's swearing and lying, murder, stealing and committing adultery. And all these things are widespread in their society. Hosea says the people of Israel are breaking all bounds, he says. There's not a law in the land they're not breaking, and it doesn't even bother them. And yet here's the curious thing. God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In other words, what you need to do, Israel, is not show up at the temple and sacrifice animals. You need to come before me and plead with me for mercy. That's all anyone needs. Want an application? You don't need a church experience to receive the sacrament, to light a candle, or to repeat a formula. 
you need to appeal to God for mercy. See, here's the problem with religious people. Religion gets in the way of seeing your true condition. You are comforted by ritual, and might I say, I'm not arguing that all ritual is wrong or unimportant, but whenever ritual and religious observance take your eyes away from that which you really need, it's gotten in the way, and that ritual is despised by God. God did not want Israel just to go on sacrificing while they were committing spiritual adultery. When there is no interchange of heart, the sacrifices are a dead ritual and they're loathsome to God. Or to put it in Jesus' words, words that he would speak later, a religion that tithes, mint, dill, and cumin, but leaves undone the weightier matters of the law, that is, justice and mercy and faithfulness to God, that religion is a disgrace. It's a distortion. It's a ritual that God despises. Now, let's notice a second important thing. Jesus says, I am a great physician. I heal sick people. Not just the physically sick, but the spiritually sick. I never came to this earth for those who are healthy. I came for those who are sick. Well, the healthy? Well, that was the Pharisees. And no, they weren't really healthy, but they thought they were. And Jesus never came for people who think they're healthy. He came for people who know they're drowning in their sins. And that, says Jesus, is exactly why I'm hanging around with tax collectors and sinners. They know they're drowning in their sins. I'm hanging around with them. But you Pharisees don't know you're drowning in your sins. And that's why I'm never going to spend my time hanging around with you. And that, of course, is essential to our salvation. You have to be intuitively aware of the weight of your sin to even want Jesus. Jesus is only interested in sinners. Unless you're a sinner, you won't meet Jesus. Unless you're convinced that you deserve wrath, you're not going to fly to him for mercy. That's how this thing goes. That's why the gospel of Jesus Christ is for the worst of us. The church was created to be God's instrument to declare the gospel to a fallen world. In Dr. Neufeld's series, Lessons for the Church, discover more about the purposes of the church and how God has equipped His church for service. Lessons for the Church is our free CD resource this month to encourage and equip God's people. Request your copy or listen online, podcast, or download the Back to the Bible Canada mobile app. Making Bible teaching you can trust available is central to our mission, and it makes a difference. Rob wrote, Back to the Bible Canada has become even more of a blessing since I relocated. I have grown so much, and the ministry has been a lifeline during this time of transition. Thanks so much for your encouragement. As always, so grateful for your prayers and financial support that sustain this ministry. For more information or to request your free CD copy of Lessons for the Church, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Go, Jesus says to the Pharisees, who were experts in the Old Testament. Go, he says, look up. Hosea 6, verse 6, study the context, understand the nature of God, and start paying attention to the Scripture. To your utter shock, you're going to find that Scripture 
doesn't promise a blessing to people who feel justified by God because of their own sense of righteousness, but rather scripture is about the worst of these, finding mercy with God. That's precisely where the rub is for many people. A number of years ago, a woman came to me after I had just finished preaching a sermon and she made her way right to the front and she looked angry. I mean, without introducing herself, she said, save from what? See, I found out she was a Mormon and, and had never been in an evangelical church. And what she heard from me that day just scandalized her. She seemed like a very proper woman, but her anger just pushed her to the front. I'd hardly closed in prayer and I, I could see her making her way forward And her first words were not an introduction of herself. And then questions like, you know, I'm Mary Brown and I I have some questions and I have some concerns about what you said. No, no, all the niceties were gone. Saved from what? That's all she said. And I said, your sins. And she said, speak for yourself. Yeah, I, I suppose she was right. The preacher she heard that morning was not overwhelmed by his own righteousness, but rather quite the opposite. He was overwhelmed that he could be saved. You know, sinner, it's a tough label. It speaks of someone who has missed the mark, but more. It speaks of a rebel to the kingdom of heaven, someone who has lifted his or her hands in in arrogance, in rebellion against his or her maker. It means that in some respects, you're a failure. You stand condemned. You're unclean. You're an object of God's wrath. You deserve damnation. And if that's not you, you're never going to meet Jesus. He didn't have to explain that to Matthew. He was under no illusions. He had traded in his Bible training for money much in the way that Esau had traded in his birthright for a lousy bowl of stew. In some ways, the account ought to end here. Let's just be thankful for our salvation. We were the sinners that Jesus came for. We were all of us in Matthew's place, sitting at our tax booth, and Jesus made a beeline for us and said, hey, you, sinner, follow me, and we did. But here's where the story gets complicated. Look again at verse 14. Then the disciples of John the Baptist came saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Seems like piling on here. They're they're joining the Pharisees and offering their own criticism. Now we know from history that long after John the Baptist died, indeed all the way to the fourth century, there were followers of John the Baptist who never became followers of Christ. And of course we know that was never John's intent. John pointed to Jesus and called him the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He encouraged his disciples to abandon himself for Jesus. And as Jesus was becoming more popular and and John less so, John simply said in John 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease. See, John knew his place, but some of his followers didn't, and they were concerned. I mean, here they were fasting, and, and here was Jesus partying with the likes of Matthew. I mean, they ought to be fasting, they say. And in reality, they're just as disturbed about Jesus as the Pharisees. I guess in some ways I understand why these men were asking. You know, we fast and you guys party. I mean, how can that be? A couple of things should be noticed. First, the only fast that was commanded in the Old Testament, it's found in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 34. God's people were to fast in keeping with the Day of Atonement. They were to afflict themselves because of their sins. All other fasts were voluntary. I mean, second, many Jews in Jesus' day made a practice of fasting every Monday and every Thursday, twice every week. I mean, they might add even more fasts, like on solemn occasions or in times of trouble or or in times of great sadness. And like all other religious observances, pretty soon people forget 
that God hadn't actually demanded these fasts. Nothing of the kind was required, but that gets ignored. Serious people are fasting. Everyone knows that. And here's Jesus. He's healing and driving out demons, and he's preaching the kingdom, and he's partying with Matthew and his company while the serious disciples of John are fasting, and it, and it seems incongruent. And Jesus gives two answers, and the first is simple. He's not saying that fasting is wrong, only that this is not the time. See, there's a time for everything under a heaven. There's a time to fast, and there's a time to feast. Fasting means to go about in mourning and seriousness because of the brokenness in the world and also in our own lives. Feasting is simply celebration. Jesus says that when he came into the world, he was like a a bridegroom coming to a wedding. This was definitely not a time to fast. To fast now would be obscene. The time for fasting would be coming later. See, the reason Christians fast today, at least one of the reasons for for the practice, is that we weep longing for the return of Christ, the final bringing about of the kingdom of heaven. We fast because we're not with our Savior physically now. But, But there's something else. Look again at verse 16 and 17. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Notice that the image is clear. See, when, for instance, wineskins got old and, and brittle, they were no longer elastic, uh, like when they were when they were new. So if you put fermented wine in them, the fermentation would simply break the skin. But what did Jesus mean by using the illustration? Well, let's go back to the question of fasting. Here's what Jesus is saying. Just like sewing on a wrong patch or using a wrong wineskin doesn't work, so using old traditional religious systems like the fasting formula would not work in this day. What people need is not another religious tradition based on the teaching of men. They need acceptance and mercy. And in order to give them mercy, you need a new wineskin. You need a religious structure that welcomes sinners. You need a formula for dancing for joy when a prodigal comes home, when a lost sheep is found, or when a a lost coin is recovered. You need to discover a time when weeping is completely unacceptable when joy and feasting and laughing and shouting is not just permitted, it's demanded that to do anything else is disgraceful. See, I remember once having a conversation with a single mom. She told me she was leaving her church, and no, it wasn't the church that I was serving. And I asked her why, and she told me she was the only single mom there, but everyone seemed to have advice for her. I asked her if the advice was bad or good, and and she said, that's not the point. See, in most cases, the advice was good. So I asked her, so what's wrong? And she said she noticed that she was the only one getting advice. She was the only one who needed correction and counseling. The others were safely married. See, they accepted each other because their lives were not broken as hers was. But hers would always be that. She said, you know, I'm not looking for a husband. I'm just looking to learn to be faithful. She said to me, I need to find a place with other single moms, but, but that's not really the issue. I need to find a place where people are are just as broken and as non-ideal as I am. It's the only place I'm ever going to belong. And that's what the new wineskins are. They're a structure that can really house a man like Jesus, who's a friend of sinners.
You don't have to be cleaned up to be in his house. You don't have to fit the ideal. You only have to want what he offers. That's enough. Indeed, you really have to know you're not cleaned up to be among the followers of Jesus. Only the broken, the wounded, the sick and the sinners need apply. If you think you're doing well, you probably don't really belong. I think the things that I've said may seem damning to some listening. I mean, some might ask, I mean, what's he trying to say? You know, we've worked hard to create a church where, where the expectations are righteousness. We want our kids not to have premarital sex. We, we want them to learn that worship is preferred over entertainment. I mean, you seem to be painting a picture that would encourage people to sin more so that they might receive grace. But I'm not. I, like you, urge young people to resist the lure of a world that would suck them away from the love and the grace of God. But while I urge this strongly, I also urge something else. I urge us never to view ourselves as worthy of God's blessing. I urge us to know that we're rebels by nature and that we're always in need of grace. I urge the church to be a community of people that have discovered mercy, not a people who have discovered ritual and self-righteousness. I urge the church to be a place where prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners find themselves easily welcomed and find themselves easily accepted in who say, I belong here. That's the new wine. John, this has been a great reminder for me. Because, you know, I, I think if we're not careful as Christians, we can forget where we came from, that we were broken, we were distant from God, and we risk causing barriers for others who are unforgiven to know the forgiveness of Jesus. Yeah, the problem is the way in which we identify ourselves, Ben. I mean, you think you put your finger on it. I mean, some of us say, well, I came from a Christian home and I came from a basically good community and I haven't done all that stuff. And that's a, that's a great grace that you haven't done that stuff. But if that's you, I'm going to give you a little assignment. I'm going to give you a reading assignment. And the reading assignment is to find one of the great pieces of literature that has ever been produced in the Christian church. It's called Augustine's Confessions. And here's a man, Augustine, who really was a reprobate, but, but, but the point is this. Augustine remembers that he was born into sin, and he remembers that he was a rebel by nature, and he remembers the childish things that he did, which seemed to some just childish things, but he thinks that they were rebellion against God. I think that book can help us to remember who we truly are, sinners saved by grace. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. As time speeds by, it's even more important that we consider how we live. That's why I'm so grateful for friends like you who walk with us verse by verse through the Bible. The encouragement we received recently from Ruth reminds us of how precious this is. Dr. John's teachings are fascinating and really bring the Bible to life for me. I can almost visualize the scenes in my mind like watching a movie when I listen to him. I usually listen to the radio program at work and end up going home and rereading the passage he spoke about that day. And every time I see it through different eyes. What a great way to use the time we've been given. With minds transformed by the washing of God's Word, we're given different eyes and God's own heart to see the world we live in. 
If you'd like to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.